I read an interview with you and you talked about social media and censorship and like the, all this kind of stuff. And I'm, that's something that I'm utterly fascinated with because I have worked with the figure in my artwork for years and I never really got so much pushback as I have since social media started. And now it's like, you can't show this, you can show that and all this kind of stuff. And I, I noticed that you seem to have a, a love hate relationship with that situation as well. Social media is like, I don't use it privately. Like that's, I think the beginning, like I think social media, the idea, like when it started, like we all used it privately and like shout a little bit of our life. Like I took that out. So like social media for me is a still a marketing tool that is like, I don't have to pay for it, like money. Like, of course I invest my time in it. I, I give them a lot of information. So in a, in a weird way I do pay, but like, I can put work out in the internet and which I can, which I also do on my website, but realistically people on social media see my work probably more than they're going to see on my, on my website. And therefore it is not necessarily the worst place, but like it comes always like with these little, little bits. And one of the little bit is that this company has certain rules which is still like it's a normal thing like every company has a rule and i can follow them in that case like when we talk about facebook instagram especially like it gets a bit blurry because the the so-called rules or like the this kind of like the their their manual is really blah like it is like it's like a really old tired bubble gum that you can stretch in every direction and and they can apply it exactly like that so Generally, like there are situations where you say like you, you cannot post nudity. That seems to be really, really clear, kind of like no nudity. But nudity is in certain cases is okay if it's from the back and if it includes, for example, a woman, it's rather or like it's more tolerated than it's a man. If it's a man, it's more tolerated. It comes from a straight man than from a from a gay man or like from a queer, like is there like it gets all of a sudden like it gets complicated. Like an ass crack is not an ass crack. If it's the ass crack of a Kim Kardashian, it's 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 wanted because it, it drives traffic to the side. If it's the ass crack of, I don't know, Bruce Springsteen, probably still okay. Or like Justin Bieber, the best case, like he posted a photo of his bare ass, completely fine. But then like at the same time, I get deleted for like a few hair coming out of of underwear there's a weird discrepancy so what i do is i pixelate everything potentially threatening to the to the company which means like i don't show any kind of pubic hair like literally if there is if there are two hairs coming out of underwear on top i pixelate that it's ridiculous it's completely stunned Okay, wait a minute. So pubic hair, just the hair is enough to hair. get it. That's ridiculous. That's, I feel, I feel like it's, you know, it's going back to like puritanical kinds of stuff to the point this. Well, that, that's where it comes from. I think like, that's my, my thing is like, it, it's in the end, it is an American company and like it applies a certain kind of like American standard of, or, or moral set of morals. So like best example is the the female nipple. It is a, an American thing, like the scare of the female nipple. I don't like. I grew up in Europe. I don't understand it. Like for me, like if, if you say like I don't want to allow women to show tits, then make it the tits. But the nipple itself, like I don't. I, for me, it was always a disconnect. Why is that little piece of skin so dangerous, so upsetting for 
people in the US. So like you can show a, a big tit like with a tassel on it, totally fine. You remove the tassel, cover the rest of the tit and just show the nipple. It's the end of the world and probably kind of the end of civilization. So it's hard to, to explain that to a European. Like we have Catholics or like religious people that are generally offended or like maybe kind of like have problem with nudity in general. But it's not that specific that you say like it's only like the female nipple that has to be banned. Well, that's my big question. Why is it only the female nipple? Why is it perfectly legitimate to show a male nipple but not a female nipple? I don't get that. It's man-made rules, and men in this sense, like really literal. I don't think like it's it's women-made rules. There is a puritanical thing, and you know more about that than than I do, like the backgrounds of it. But for me, it's really like I have a huge question mark, and not only me, many people have a huge question mark about this female nipple thing, like. If you so coming back to what I said before, like if you want to ban something, ban nipples. I understand that the same way that you can say like I want to ban eyes or eyebrows, fine, but do it every eyebrow, not just like female eyebrows. So like this makes it easy. So for me, like when I look at the the whole sets of morals of of Facebook, Instagram, like I don't understand it. Like I. I'm a German. I give me a good set of rules that I can understand and that I can follow. It makes my life easy. But like, if the rule gets all of a sudden like bent in many directions and I they're not clear anymore, then it gets really tricky. And I've been deleted in the past. Like, and I'm talking about the complete accounts deleted, not only a single photos. Like for for ludicrous things. Like in the beginning, I played a lot like with with the perception of what people thought they saw in a photo. But what what wasn't actually showing in the photo or like wasn't there, so like it's more like what happened in people's mind. Like and the dirt quite often is in the mind of the person, not necessarily on a on an artwork. I had five accounts over a relatively short time completely deleted. That is the reason why I have two different Instagram accounts now. Like I have one, my official one, like with my full name, and then like the FFFX heads one just in case like one of them gets deleted that I don't have to start again from zero because it's so tedious. I'm shocked by all that. Like I'm really surprised because you're saying that you got deleted from them for basically implying something, but not actually showing something. I never showed dick. I never showed as I never showed graphic sexuality because like most people, like I'm pretty aware of like what is allowed and what, what seemingly is not allowed and what not. But then like you do have, of course you have moderators that can look at a photo and can decide, okay, like this is horrible or not. Compared to the amount of, of graphic violence like that is online and is allowed on social media. Like it's it's kind of weird, but there is a there's a massive scare of sexuality and even kind of like, not even real sexuality, just things that insinuate. So there is, it's always used, of course, like the, the one million mom argument is like always used of kind of like to protect the kids. The kids are, if you want to protect your kids, then move them really like to the middle of nowhere in Alaska and just take them away the, the internet. They've seen more than we think they did. And, Instagram, as I like, they, they're not going to get hurt by Instagram by seeing like a female nipple. They're going to get hurt by Instagram by following like unrealistic body images. 
Absolutely. Or bullying or trolling or any of that kind of stuff. There are so many other things that could be much more harmful than the potentiality of finding an appreciation for the human body. Yeah, 100%. So yeah, like my story with Instagram, Facebook is, is a bit twisted. Like at one hand, like I use it for my advantage because like I can really like I can reach a broad audience and like I, I always use the, the example Iran or Pakistan like I reach people that don't necessarily have access to my work in real but they can see certain things online if a regime allows them to or like if a country allows them to and as much as I complain about it like every time I get a message from someone in Iran for example saying like thank you for your work like it's like it's so nice to see that this is possible I had an like a pop-up exhibition like in summer for Pride, like where I had like a huge window printed like with one of my photos of two guys kissing, and that just posted a story, and like several guys in Iran actually wrote me saying like, "Wow, this is so incredible that this is possible. This gives me hope." So when these moments happen, like they're really special. But on the other hand, like the, it's a machinery, Instagram. It is a company. I don't take things too personal. I also don't show necessarily a hundred percent everything I do like like I wouldn't say like Instagram is a representation of what I do it's more kind of like a I use a little bit like a thirst trap kind of like not to lure you in but kind of like it's more it's a lot of playful stuff it's kind of like so I don't take it too serious like I also don't believe that artists like should concentrate only on social media like it's a it's a nice add-on but like it will never replace like real exhibitions real prints and like really bringing things properly out but it can bring people into your world and maybe start conversations one of the things that I, drives me nuts about it is a photograph of a real person that can be banned whatever all this kind of stuff but if you were to paint a naked person with a large vulva or breast or penis that's fine or if you do a sculpture of a naked whatever or a sex act as a sculpture or a painting or any other medium other than a photograph, perfectly fine, no problems. Not 100%, yeah, yes and no. Like it, it's more likely that it stays online, but I think all of the Viennese museums right now, they've created an OnlyFans account because they got deleted so many times for paintings or like for sculptures, like which is bizarre. Like there were like there were so many museums that had problems in the past with social media for like huge like highly recognizable artworks being deleted for sexuality, which is ridiculous. And I'm not talking about the maple top photo, you know. Like I'm talking really about about the jelly. I, I I went to the Corcoran School of Art for my undergraduate, and so the story about the Maplethorpe exhibition there was always going on and on and on. Do you know that what what the the congressperson that had a problem with that exhibition really had a problem with? Like everybody assumes it was the bullwhip in the ass, but it, it actually wasn't that. It was the child, the photo of the child, right? That's right. It was his niece or something like that, and she her legs were open, and you could see in this little girl's sort of crotch area. And that's what he had a problem with. Not the blatant homosexual stuff and the, all the homoerotic stuff and all that kind of stuff. The, the, the congressperson had no problem with all that stuff. It was the child that he had a problem with. And again, there were kind of like, if he sees sexuality in that, like he should question himself. Absolutely. This, this would be like for me a warning was like, okay, you see sex in that? I see a child, you see sex? Who's the pervert here? 
Yeah, I saw it the for the first time I saw that image and I was like, oh, it's like just an innocent little girl playing on a lounge chair. Like, that's cute. And like, I didn't see anything inappropriate about it. But wow, that created such an uproar. Bringing it back to, to social media, like I understand that or like I find it okay that parents don't show their, their children naked on social media. Like this is like absolutely normal. But on the other hand, like we all grew up that our parents took photos of us on naked somewhere like as a toddler or as a so if you continue that and like like the, the it could easily end up that that parents get penalized for having naked photos of their children that's where it gets kind of like really tricky was kind of like you can't protect a society like this idea of like the nanny state or government like that is protecting everyone from everything was like but what like where does that lead to in terms of of people like how much can they do themselves or like can think for themselves anymore well it's not it unfortunately it's not i don't feel like it's a nanny state it's a nanny corporation so like that to me to uh, the problem i really have with it is that this is a corporation that basically made a bunch of rules and laws within their corporation and we have to abide by it but unfortunately it sort of rules our society at this moment so it's not the government that's doing this which in and of itself would be a problem also but in this case it's a private corporation that's making these decisions for us and i'm just sort of like eh, you know because like i don't have the i have the right to vote in politics and so i could you know vote somebody who agrees with that kind of position out of office whereas i can't vote somebody from facebook out of office you know in a really funny way or like in a really weird way like facebook took over like the role of the church like in the in the past in the sense of kind of like being missionary and like really preaching their weird morals and but also spreading them like in like a disease and the female nipple like you grew up with it like it might be still it's still weird for you but you grew up with it it's understandable for you more or less but like let's say like it, it, it's in in your dna in a sense of like that is that is your national past i i don't like i live in berlin like you go in the city park you strip down naked you sunbathe it has nothing to do with sex it's nudity which is regarded as something completely normal I don't want that that kids here grow up with the idea that a female nipple could be dangerous, pornographic, or weird. And Facebook is bringing that over, just like the church kind of like brought the hate speech over into the world. So that is a kind of like a really, like they literally took over the world. Like get rid of the church and have like Mark Zuckerberg as the new Jesus, like spreading the hateful hateful morals. Just FYI, in case you didn't know it, my father's a minister. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> We're not going to talk about religion. Don't worry. Oh, no, it's fine. I, you know, I try to stay away from it, but you know, it creeps in everywhere, unfortunately. But what, like, let's see, how long ago? 2014. So seven years ago, actually, I did a, a workshop with Jock Sturges at a, a naturalist community, a, a nudist colony. And I'll tell you, it was one of the most sort of freeing experiences I'd ever had. Like I going there prior to going there, I was petrified. I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to, I have to be naked while photographing these other naked people. And that was scared the hell out of me because like, I was so scared, like I'd get aroused or I, or, or I just look bad you know, like I'm not the best naked looking person. So I was totally afraid of it. And within 24 hours, it was the most freeing experience. And, the, and it just felt so natural. And 
nothing was titillating, nothing was sexual, nothing was, it was just simply a bunch of people being natural, period. And nobody judged, nobody criticized, nobody mocked. There, it didn't seem like there was any bullying with, because uh, I'm talking about some of the ch the kids that were around. I mean, we even went to a swimming pool and the, everybody was happy and playing and, and mixing and blending of different cultures and people. It was amazing. And like, I would gladly take my child to which I don't have a child, but it, when I have a child, <laughs> I would take them to a naturalist community. Like, I think it's a, a really interesting way to be. Like, there's no competition. You, you look at other people, kind of like the, the, look at a scrotum the same way you look at an earlobe or like a, a nose, kind of like you, you might compare it to yours, but there's never really this idea of kind of like, ooh, this is like, it's not even about disgusting or sexy. Like, this is, is, is a person. That's how they look like, full stop. And I mean, that's a similar situation what I have when I when I take photos, like I, I shoot a lot of naked men and like it's not about necessarily like a sexiness, like I don't really, like I get asked a lot when people, like I only shoot with people that contact me and like a lot of people write me saying like, I would love to be part of your photos, but I'm not your type. I was like, what, what's my type? And then they go like, uh, and and it's like well i don't have a type like my the one type that i may might have is like someone who is kind of like okay with their body no matter what it looks like but in the end my job then is like to to look at the body and find something that i find interesting that i find beautiful or that that is something like my my way of looking at a body and that doesn't have to be like a 22 year old athletic skinny white blonde you know like that i don't care for that like if it's there fine if it's not there fine just be be up for my view on you like that's all that surprises a lot of people it's so weird that we like we all have like this this idea of like how we should look like or what what i always ask people before before we shoot and like i normally i meet people like up to a week or two beforehand on a neutral space like in a cafe or for a walk and i want to get to know them and i want to give them this also the space to get to know me have answer questions set a couple of of rules but also within that like i always ask them like kind of like how they see themselves how they want to be seen how they think others see them like these three questions and they're not simple they're, they're, they're kind of like quite tough questions in the end if you if you think about it and they don't need to give me an answer it's just think about that and like eventually like we're going to talk about that again and the first layer then is going to be like how i'm going to see you like or like my view on you but like it's these three things of like how do i see myself how do i think others see me and how do i want to be seen they don't necessarily correlate all the time like they might be completely different sometimes they come together but rarely ever like and it's we all have that we're all kind of like having idea of like who we want to be and that doesn't necessarily match of who we are and the end game for me is always like to to find a way of kind of like being okay with it like accepting and like being gentle to us and looking at ourselves and like don't have this unrealistic expectations that we all grow up with all right yeah it's a nice approach just trying to think it through because like when i'm thinking about like my you know myself or my subjects oftentimes 
I will think of them just as an object. They're just in front of the camera accomplishing a task that I'm trying to express through the photograph. And, and But you're trying to get a more intimate relationship created and, and expressed probably than I did when I was taking pictures. I don't take pictures very much anymore. <laughs> I try to get to know the person. Like first in the, in the first meeting, like that's the first getting to know each other. But then like while I shoot, like it is for me more now more an idea of kind of like i get to know someone with a camera i observe them also like i the camera gives me permission to stare i'm german i like to stare so like the camera kind of like gives me even more more permission great but also like doing a shoot like i i have a conversation i, I talk with them like we like gonna stop like i ask questions like a big part of our job is to create a situation that is comfortable for someone and like i firmly believe in that like because i don't i don't work with models like let's say 95% of the people are not trained to be in front of a camera. 5% might be dancers or performers that use, you work with their body, so they're a little bit more relaxed. But most of the people are not. They're complete they're normal people. And my job is to take the awkwardness away and to create an atmosphere where they can relax and forget about it's completely unnatural that they're naked and I'm I'm not and I'm standing behind the camera. Like this is, is not a normal everyday today situation. Like for, for most people at least. I was gonna say maybe, maybe it is for them. Who knows? Yeah, well, good for them. <laughs> you never know. No, okay. So wait, let's take it back a step. So like looking at your work, I one of the things I wondered about, like, do you shoot on location? Do you shoot in studios? It sort of feels like there might be a mix of both depending on the the series kind of thing. So like, how do you, what's your studio practice, I guess? Like, so do you uh, just go out and find a location or do you sort of find location first and then bring somebody to it? Like, how does it, you, how do you construct your images? I think there are two different approaches. Like, I, let me roll that a little bit further back. Like I've, I like how I started to take photos. I love it. Go ahead. Yes. Let, let's do the whole story. Like, I never wanted to take photos in my life. Like, I, I wasn't. I never wanted to be a photographer. That that's the the starting point. Like, I grew up with. Like, I always surrounded myself like with with photo books and magazines. Like, I grew up with that. Like, I grew up in a tiny little hateful village that my parents moved me to when I was little. Like, I was born in Frankfurt, and then they moved me to this tiny little place in Bavaria. So my getaway or like my escapism was books, like reading, but also like looking at, at photography, looking at old movies, if I could get them in German television. So like this was my way of kind of like escaping. So photography was always there, but I never was interested in taking myself. Like I had an analog camera and like I took photos, but it always, it, it, I never followed through because I never brought the film to developing to the develop to the laboratory, like to get developed. Okay, wait one one second. Let's take a step, step back. How old are you? If you don't mind, you don't have to tell me. No, like it's it's totally fine. Like I, I just the other day, like I had a conversation with someone about age and how important it is or not. Where like I I was weirdly kind of like a post like it was about an exhibition and like having my my birth year printed where i was really weirdly really opposed to because i really found it really unnecessary as an information was i kind of like what what is the point and whereas like it makes sense like once i'm dead to place me in time <laughs> no no i'll give you more context on why i meant that it's because you said you know growing up in a small town in bavaria kind of thing like so i'm just trying to figure out like maybe what decade it was what what generation that was 
that was that was definitely pre-internet so like there was no access to any kind of like looking up quickly like a a photo of avidon or something like i had to steal the or like yeah i, I stole the books like i didn't have enough pocket money so like i went into the shops and i i stole bunches of photo books like crazy many but like i had a really good technique like that's also the way that i discovered maple top with 14 like uh, there was a beautiful little book where i basically like i was in a in a quite good bookshop and like just like flicked through books and then like all of a sudden like i saw these beautiful color lilies and then like i turned the page and there was like this really beautiful anus which kind of like spoke to me on on different layers so like of course i stole it and like it it worked on it was it was funny it worked obviously as a 14 year old like it worked on on one particular layer but then also like it was the first time that i saw sexuality like in an art context and it gave like on a longer run i think like that also gave me permission to to use that or like to develop like some sort of like a little bit more relaxed relationship same with tom of finland like tom of finland's men like they are considered for many like as this weird sexual little drawings but in the end like he he created a world that depicted gays men in a really positive way like there's no shame there's nothing bad about it and like seeing that as a as a teenager was pretty amazing like that really gave me like a positive outlook in a time where AIDS was still looming and like still kind of like being considered or like being homosexual like was considered as a stigma so like having these these two artists like in my life gave me kind of like a little bit of a positive situation so being surrounded by a lot of photo books a lot of old hollywood photo books so Clarence Sinclair Borle George Harrell like big big icons of mine I think like most of my light ideas of light comes from there, like the way they set light, the way they lit a face, horse be horse later on, like the way he treated skin, like all of these, like my references, like in photography are all like from these, these times, like where I really unconsciously I studied their work. Like I never studied it in the sense of like, oh, I want to take do it myself, but like they, they're there. Like I can talk about, each of their photos probably for an hour because I studied them so thoroughly when I was a teenager because I was just really enjoying them. Yeah, you hit my wheelhouse. I love those same same artists. There's just, I mean, George Hurl is one of my great like loves. Absolutely adore his poses, his use of textures and, and the satins and the furs and the light. I mean, my God, what those days, so elegant. I, it is, and I think everyone who is dealing with light needs to have a look at them. Like, it, there, there is something so, there's a technique behind it that is incredible, like the way he composed. But also like like a, a Peter Hujar, like where it's like kind of like where I learned like a, a certain kind of like emotional layer, like that Maple Soap, for example, doesn't have at all. Like, and I find that Hujar is like so much more for me, it's more valuable and important for me as a, a Mapletop. But that said, like Mapletop had a big impact on me. So yeah, like never wanted to do, do photography, started to work in theater, ended up like as, first as a costume designer, like for opera and for dance. And then like I, I kind of got bored within a short time because I realized I don't care if the button is left or right. Like I really didn't care. Like I was really interested in the conceptual aspect of like sitting down with, an, with a director and really working on concept. 
but in the like the fittings, I I don't whatever. It's like I, I can't stitch a thing. Like I was always reliant like on on the workshops and they always loved me so they did everything for me which was great wonderful people but like i didn't care enough so i I moved over to production and i started to produce theater mainly dance and and opera and like been also touring big pieces working for big festivals and big houses and eventually like i wanted to make money and started to started to intern in a tv production company because like i really wanted to earn money up like theater doesn't pay like it is a great really satisfying job and area but it just doesn't pay and i was at the point where i was like i, I want to make money so i started working in television big saturday night entertainment pretty pretty weird because like i was it was exactly the opposite like it was paid really well but like the people like they could have also worked like in a insurance company or in a bank like it didn't matter like it was literally just like technical work like there was no really passion about it like they could have done anything was kind of like in theater like it's so particular and like there's still fights about little things and then my kind of like my body said no. And I was working like seven days a week. Like I was a absolutely workaholic. And basically my body went on strike. And I, first I got shingles and the shingles then kind of like, because my immune system was completely down, like went into my brain and I got an encephalitis, which is a brain inflammation. And that led me, like that ended, ended me up in the hospital and I was nearly dying basically. It was a couple of weeks where they really fighting, a lot, lot of infusions trying to get me out of there and then it was clear that I was fine and the professor came to me like for the last checkups and with his flip chart and like so yes looks like you're you're good and like we're going to release you soon but you have two options now here like one you're going to continue to go back to your life and um, I'm going to see you again like not tomorrow not not in a week not in a year but you'll be back like if you do that you'll be back and the other possibility that you have is like change your life, take responsibility and like slow down. And that wasn't really easy cho- choice that I had. So like I quit my career and, and that and basically like had to learn to live, like to deal with time. But also like in the time in the hospital, I basically lost a big chunk of my memory because of the brain inflammation. And that was scary. Because like that was really like you could have visited me the day before. I had no idea that you were there. Like it was completely gone. But also like chunks from from memory from before. Like, and that is how I started to take photos. Like in in terms of uh, in order to remember. Like I've I've never written a diary. I, I I'm not a writer. But like in order to remember, like I needed a visual clue, and I w- had like this tiny little Canon. Ixus like a point and shoot like that I stole from a friend of mine from a drag queen like and I, I used that camera like to take little little like visual notes literally like kind of like I, I took the photo of a of a cup or from something and like I but I looked at the at the photo the next day or two weeks later and I could remember so that helped me through the toughest time and this is how I started to basically take photos like I had the camera always on me like always on my in my pocket and like I would just take it out and take photos that was before iPhone so that became like a normal thing I started that all of that started never not really under the aspect of like I'm creating art I need to show that to anyone that was purely private but it also it conditioned me to think more photographically so like automatically like I 
I didn't shoot like a random photo. I always composed it like in the camera. Like I, there was always like a certain, certain way of like how I treated what I saw. And with the camera, like next to me or next to, next to my bed, I started to take photos of my friends, of, also of my lovers, partly during sex, after sex, at breakfast, like all these daily, daily things. And that was a time where Tumblr was still a thing, like bringing it back to social media. That was probably like the most interesting social media in a sense that you really, like I had my classic Tumblr, my first Tumblr was a pure repost Tumblr. Like I followed several people and I would find photos that I was interested in and reposted it on mine, like with a link to their, to the original person who posted it. So at one point I posted one of my photos, my private photos, and I really liked the photo. I put it out there. didn't think too much about it, but like it went viral. Like within a really short time, it went viral, which was interesting, but also a little bit weird because like I am a really private person and having like it, it didn't show too much. Like it didn't really give away identity or anything, but like still it, it felt a bit like I'm giving away my my life. But nevertheless, I, a couple of weeks later, I posted another one, the same thing happened. And then the third one again. And that was the point after the third one was like, okay, like I take these photos, I like them, but apparently other people seem to like what I do. Why not instead of like, giving away in my private life? Why not taking it from the other side, getting a little bit better camera secondhand? a little light and start to create images and start to create the things that I have in my head or that I sometimes also question in my head because I didn't know, is it a real memory or is it just something made up because I, I lost so many of them. And that's how I started to shoot. Like I really, I, I found people that were willing to sit for me and in the beginning, like that's a hard, hard thing. And I had a sketchbook of like what I wanted to shoot. Like I knew exactly what I wanted to shoot. So I had the sketch, I knew kind of like how I wanted to set the light and found the person and then took the photo. And with that, I started to learn how to take photos. I'm not a medical professional, so help me out a little bit with the encephalitis. You said you at that point you lost memory. Does it still affect your memory or was that sort of just a, at that exact moment of the sort of the inflammation at that time? But like, so do you still have problems with memory? <laughs> I use it sometimes as an excuse. <laughs> I would too. I don't, honestly, I don't know. Like it's, it's not, not so bad, but my memory is definitely not a good one. Like, but I also question like, was it, was it that good before? Like, I, I can't remember. <laughs> well, I mean, cause like I'm thinking about like, you mentioned shingles. Like I had shingles when I was probably, I don't know, 25, 26. And, and it was around a time when I was a roadie working with rock and roll bands touring around and stuff. So like, I'm sort of like, I wonder if there's some correlation between all that stuff, but yeah. When shingles come, basically they come from like an immune system that is crying for help or like being a roadie on tour is probably a lot of drinking, a lot of drugs, little sleep. So like your body is kind of like, it's not the strongest. Yes. Yes. There was all of that just to be clear. <laughs> yeah. So it happens like that then like your body just kind of like, okay, stop. And what it does, like it sends out like these shingles and basically knocks you out and like forces you to step down a little bit or like to relax a little bit, like at least for a couple of weeks or maybe you didn't, I don't know, but it's painful. It's annoying. And like, it does something to your body. 
no, I probably didn't stop. I just took a lot of pain medications because I was already a drug addict at the time. So I just took more drugs, but more pain relieving drugs. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, a different yeah. approach. Well, I mean, at the time I was, you know, cocaine and heroin and all kinds of different stuff. And basically anything I can get my hands on, I would do it, you know, to excess. And so like when something like, I mean, I had plenty of broken bones and I even like cut my, my scar, my head open one time and, and my boss turns to me, he's like, oh, well that really sucks. Here's a joint. And like, so you, you know, you smoke a joint, get back to work with a gash in your head. It's fine. You know, this, this was the job. <laughs> I was working in nightlife for, for quite a long time. Like I was managing the bars of like one of the biggest clubs here in Berlin. So, and like you tend to believe that you're, you can't be replaced. Like you're on a shift and like, I'm, I was never late. I was always like, I, I, I was always there. Like if I, if I have to be somewhere, I'll be there. Like I do the job. Like if you cut off my leg, I still try to do it. But that attitude is so wrong and so unhealthy and like going to work like with, like a, a cab knocked me off my bike but like i still kind of like i went to the hospital got got a stitched up and then like went to the club of kind of like yeah as if i would be of any help like with kind of like barely being able to walk or lift anything or like someone like smashed a, a, a bottle kind of like on my forehead instead of going to the er at night it's kind of like you just kind of like you clean the wound put some plaster on and then continue working like who's who am I helping there? Like no one. It's just bullshit. Yeah, but they're great stories in retrospect. Yeah, and good and good scars. <laughs> Absolutely, life's nothing but a bunch of stories and scars for me, anyways. One hundred percent. And like, if you have stories, make them good ones. Absolutely. Now, okay, so let's get into some of the like nitty gritty of it, like the technical, not technical photography, technical, but like business side of it. So like you've been realistically doing the like professional, I'm putting air quotes, professional photography for about seven years. Is that right? Not even like I, I would say like it started 2016. So it'd be five years at this point. Okay. I started end of 2015, I would say like I started with really like in a more little, like, let's say, professional setting of like really finding people and like working on ideas that I had before, like instead of snapping away. In 2016, I already had my first exhibition. And also 2016, a publishing house approached me to make a book, which was odd for me. Yeah, exactly. That was really odd for me. And I told them also kind of like, I think it's too early. Like realistically, like, of course you're flattered and it's nice, but I'm, I'm envious is what I am. Wait, I've been doing this for like 20 some odd years. I have no book people public coming to me. Like you didn't even, you didn't even pitch a book. People just said, Hey, we, we want you to do a book. Like I'm always a bit worried. Like when things happen too fast, like I think like people need time to develop and like develop an own language. And I was happy that people liked my work and what I was doing. And I, I obviously hit a nerve. Otherwise people would not, would have not been interested but also like it put me in a weird situation of like, I don't like, I wouldn't even call myself a photographer or artist. Like I didn't know what I was doing. Like I, I mean, I did somehow knew what I was doing and I had an, I had a clear idea or like a clear visual artistic idea, but still technically like in terms of a camera, it's like I pressed buttons and hope for the best. Well, technically that's what we all do. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. So like the, first book came out in October 2016 it was cute I would obviously wouldn't do it like this today but it was a it was a nice introduction 
that I was there, let's say. That point on, like, I just really started to concentrate really on my work and like really, I quit working at Berkheim and then really became, did that full time, which was a kind of like a, a weird step of like not having a, a safety blanket in the back that pays my bills and just being, having to, to live off that or make it happen. But that also kind of like forced me a little bit like to, to be more serious about it. Kind of like thinking in terms of like archiving and like, you know, all of these things that no one really like, it's like one thing is like, oh, I love to take photos. Good for you. But what happens if your hard drive crashes? Like, what, like, how do you, how do you, how, what, what, how do you number them? Like, how do you find a photo? Like if you, if you have a particular, you want to want to do a print, what, what format do you shoot? Like what, what edition, like, oh, you know, like all of the things, this is what I think you should learn in, if you go like to in a school like you should learn that like they should teach you that like you of course you can teach someone an artistic approach or like an academic approach or like make people read a lot and question things but like also like you need to learn the technical things that are boring and so i basically taught it myself like i went into like a lot is logic but like also a lot is kind of like looking up things how how do other people do it like when it comes to like backing up and keeping organized and all this kind of stuff i'll tell you lightroom has been the most amazing software because like when i started photography that never existed when that came out like the ability to use markings and comments and all and the flags and all the color codes i mean it's magnificent but my biggest fear is that if for some reason for you know knock on wood I were to die of any sort of like freak accident. If somebody were to come in and look at my digital files to be able to say which ones I thought were the best ones. And then like other pe other people would basically edit my legacy because, you know, based on basically how I marked my Lightroom photos. I'm just like, oh my God, this is horribly embarrassing. They're going to think I thought this was a good photo. Like it's just, it's a mess. Yeah. And I, I do double backups. I have two hard drive backups. I have my computer that I have all my stuff I'm working on. Then I have hard drive backup. And then I have a backup of that backup just in case for some freak nature, because I've had hard drives that were my backups and they failed, not because I used them too much, but like I put them in storage and the next time I brought them out, they were just failed. I triple double. backup. You triple backup. Okay, great. I really try like, but that's, that's the point is like we, we work now in a digital world where it's kind of like, I cannot trust that a digital file is necessarily always surviving. Like just what you said, like you put it somewhere and you bring it back and all of a sudden the hard drive is gone. So like, I need to make sure like there, I don't have a negative that I like, if I'm, if I store a negative in a, in a sensible good way, like it can stay in a dark place, like for a long time. But it, of course, if there's a fire, it's gone. Tough shit. Actually, now I have to agree with you. I do triple backups because I also take my best images and put them on a Dropbox folder as well. So actually, I do have a triple backup, two two physicals and one one virtual backup. Yeah, exactly this. So like, I had a lot of conversations with other people, and they always think I'm paranoid. But I, it's like I'm again, like I started to take photos because I lost memory, and that's that's a good that's a good image for that. And like funny enough, like the, the, the photos that I took in the hospital and later on, I lost them through a hard drive crash. So like these are gone. So like it's kind of like a double erasure of memory in a, in a weird way, which is also fun. Like I quite like actually the idea that 
because a lot of people are like, oh, what, what are you going to do something with these photos? I lost them. <laughs> Just like the memory, I lost them. It's good. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it is actually kind of nice to lose some things and you sort of go like, okay, it was a burden that was weighing on me a little bit. So like, just move forward, basically. Let's not, you know, dwell on these past images. Let's make some new, better ones. Sure. But also like sometimes it's it's okay to use an old image as a sketch and like create a better version of it if you haven't kind of like necessarily brought that out before. Oh yeah, my parents are so pissed at me because I've got uh, like an entire shelving unit full of old negatives that are still in storage in their house. <laughs> I'm so happy that I never took photo like uh, analog photos. Like I have so many friends that are dealing with their analog archive and like scanning and like it already takes a lot of time like to take care of a digital archive, but like a physical archive is like fucking hell. I go back and forth on it. I mean, I love the physical nature of it but on the other hand yes it is a, a it takes up a lot of space and even money as well as uh, you know it's more expensive in some ways to store analog imagery than it is to even buy all the technologies to store digital but on the other hand i am paying a monthly fee to dropbox so you know <laughs> you have both like you have analog and digital so that's what i mean like kudos yeah so I, i've got twice as many bills on that as you do <laughs> You've just got digital bills. I've got digital and analog bills for that. I love digital exactly for that. Like it enables me like to work, like I can be 100% hands-on. Like the one little thing that I cannot do yet completely by myself is printing. Like that's still like where I work with a printer and I sit on their shoulders and they know exactly what I want. Like it's a bit like, I mean, I don't have hair, but like I, that's imagine of like how I imagine someone finding the perfect hairdresser. And like you don't change like once you found a, a great printer and it's a getting to know process like once they know you like i i i only print there like i don't print anywhere else but like digital like literally like from taking like pressing the button to releasing the photo to the the printer i do everything like i don't hand my files out like it's such an for me a personal process like i know a lot of people who hand out like editing and post-production all of that like to someone else for me like this is one of the most important artistic parts is like how i deal with my with my files how i develop them like how i already like the development sets already like the mood of like what the photo is going to be but then also kind of like the treatment of it like and i enjoy that process like i can sit like winter for me is like the time where i sit in front of my computer and do nothing else i, I shoot in summer and I, I work in winter like and i work way more time than most people with a nine to five job which most people don't understand because they always think like that we all we do are little things and like we're always available but actually i get up in the morning i make a coffee i switch on the computer and i leave the computer at two at night so like the good thing with our job is that it doesn't feel like a job or like it's not like I, I don't want to shoot myself in the face for sitting nine to five Monday to Friday <laughs> in a insurance company deciding on who gets money or not. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I love our jobs being creative people because it, but sometimes it does feel like a job. It's if you're only doing your own work, no, it does not feel like a job. But when you have a deadline or an obligation or a client or something like this, then it starts feeling like a bit of a job. 100%. Like client, I mean, touch wood so far, like I can, I'm saying really politely no to commercial jobs because like I know it would 
kind of like it, I would end up hating hating taking photos, and like that would end my it would end me being a photographer. And like if I can afford it financially, like I'd rather don't have a luxurious life but have a happy life and like do what I want to do and I'm not corrupted by the money. And like that's a, like sometimes if rent is due and you have to then do it. Right? I mean, sure. But like as I say, like luckily at the moment I don't and I get a lot of risk like people ask me like for, for advertising or for fashion and it's not that I hate fashion, but I, I don't feel comfortable in the world necessarily. Like the the whole, like I have many friends working in fashion. None of them is happy. Everyone tells like exactly the same stories of um, abuse and things. But like I, I don't fit in there. So my my technique or like my method of like saying no is to say yes but say yes in a way that it gets like it's a no for them to say like I'm happy to do that but I need a carte blanche it's going to be like five photos you're going to get them at that date I do the selection the client will be not in the same country I choose the models and this is what they get so like then it's kind of like normally kind of like oh sorry we can't do that and from my point is like well maybe next time now I gave that away and I can't use it anymore I love that though. That's magnificent. Like, so you're, you're literally always saying yes, as long as they do it on your terms. Exactly. Beautiful. Every once in a while, someone says yes. And then, then I'm fucked and then I have to do it. And, but that's also fine. Like if they take the, if, if they take the risk, I think like, that's totally fair. I got that technique from, from the Rushka, from the model from the seventies. She was like the, the, one of the biggest faces and models in the, in the sixties and seventies. And Diana Reland like basically told her that like she she was asked to do a vodka commercial that she didn't want to do and then Reland told her just like say yes but be really difficult and be even more difficult and ask for a lot and if they still want then kind of like then maybe that works yeah okay no so you say you basically you're making a living from selling your artwork is that right is that what I'm hearing I do yeah that's magnificent. I like hearing that artists are making livings. I think that's great. It doesn't mean that I have the most luxurious life in the world. Right. As you just got out of your Ferrari, right? Well, it's a Corvette, but yeah. Okay, fair enough. Is it really? Do you have a Corvette? I have a bike. Oh, okay. I have a bike in Berlin, I have a bike in LA, and I have a bike in, in Copenhagen. Like that's the luxury luxury that I have. But um no. I don't I don't drive. I don't have a driver's license. Really? I get around with bikes really well. It's good for you. Yeah, I love it. I'm I could never do that. I this is I'm being in Prague is the first time in my adult life that I haven't had a car, and it's painful. I I want a car. <laughs> well, no, don't get me wrong. Public transit is magnificent here, and and I use it every day, and it's great. But I like being able to buy like like go to a hardware store and buy a bunch of wood. I do woodworking. Sometimes I build my own frames and, and things like this for my, for my, my pieces. So like, I like being able to like, just pick up and go to a hardware store and just buy a big piece of wood, but like going on mass transit and trying to buy like a full sheet of plywood doesn't work for me. So no, I get that. No, I totally understand that. Like, and for me, like the only time I, kind of like regret not having a driver's license, is like when I want to go in really deep into nature, 
and then I'm, I rely on someone else. And sometimes I just want to go on my own. Like I don't necessarily want to have someone with me. And still, you can do could do that technically with public transport, get really close to something, but it's just not the same. But other than that, like I'm totally fine. Like I never had a driver's license. I never missed it. Like I, like once I moved out of this horrible this tiny little village, like I always lived in urban spaces. So like I never needed a car. LA is a, for example, is an easy city to cycle around. Like everyone is always scared about that. Like, like people that live there, but they also obviously never have cycled anywhere in the world. So like, it's kind of like relaxed there because every, every driver is scared of you. Like everyone is slowing down because they're scared that you sue the shit out of them when they hit you. Which is the American way. Yes, it's fine. Sure. But that protects me, so like, good, like works for me. <laughs> I mean, that's magnificent. Okay, wait. So let's go back. So you you work with a printer. I'm always interested in some of like the choices that photographers make when they're doing their print runs and their editions and things like this. So, do you when you go to do a print, do you pr- like print the whole? Well, okay. First of all, do you work in like an edition? I do work in editions. Like I have two different editions like one is like also different sizes like one is a 10 edition of 10 and one is an edition of five okay but but my question with that is do you print all 10 at the same time or do you print on demand basically like when necessary because for me i i used to be super technical about this shit like all into the icc profiles and all and monitor calibration and all this stuff and I found that like if you try and print even on the same paper, on the same printer, on the same computer with the same profiles, if you print like in the springtime and then you print again in the fall, that just the humidity in the air can make it so the colors are different and things like this. Like, So I always wonder like how obsessive do other people get? Like I got far too obsessive. I don't. Like um, from, no, no, seriously, like it, I understand you and I, I understand where you're coming from. And I, I find that a really great approach, but realistically, I don't know many people who print all, like, let's say you have an edition of five, they print all five of them, store them, sell one, and then like hope in the next five years, like they get, get rid of the other four. Like it used to be like that. And like, it is like the, the way we, we see a vintage print versus like a, a current print, like all of these comes into thing. I don't know, like I'm, I'm definitely more relaxed. Like I trust my printer in the sense that like all of the settings and everything is stored. Like they meticulously write everything down. Like there is from every test print is stored. So like I can go to them say like, I need from that and that date, like another print and like, I will get it. I never put them next to each other, like from a different time. So I cannot say that it doesn't, it has such a strong effect. But I also think that makes it probably even more special for me. Well, see, in the old days with analog, so darkroom printing, the chemicals, so like the 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 tray of the developer and all this kind of stuff, like as the chemicals got used or if you mixed them differently, like from one day to the next, a print could be different. Or if you if you finally got all the printing techniques all down and you're dodging and burning correct and everything, and you had to switch to a new box of paper, that different next box might look completely different, even though every other setting was exactly the same. And so I think my fetish about this and my obsession about it is a holdover still from that darkroom process. Which totally makes sense. But I think like with a printing, I think like we're a little bit more on the safer side, but I still believe you might be right that there might be small variations. I'm not sure if they're so visible, 
I think also that makes every print somehow unique. Like if they they're there, like unless like the colors are completely off. I mean that that is more like a situation that every print still gets through my through my quality control. Let's say like there is, and sometimes you have to do a reprint because like paper like not every paper picks up color the same way. Like I use matte paper that has a lot of pores, so like quite often like the black kind of like doesn't stick at one paper so like i know that and i my printer always like rolls the eye when i bring a really dark photo <laughs> for, for that particular paper sometimes they can be by hand retouched to like kind of like what you also did like with the with the analog photos that little bits and pieces can be changed which is totally fine no way okay so I, and again of course i'm obsessing about stupid technical shit but what what kind of paper do you use I have a fetish for a particular paper. I'm wondering what yours is. Like my favorite is probably like the classic Hannemühle photo rack. It is matte, like it has a, it's not rough, it has, but it's not super smooth. So like it gives a certain kind of like velvety surface. But then like the one that I, in the beginning really fell in love with and which I printed in the, only in the beginning, only on that was Moab Entrada which is even more velvety. Like many, many people don't know that one, but like it has like really like this, this really quality, especially in the darks. Like it, it, you just, you see the print and it's really special. Like the colors come out fantastically. For me, seeing for the first time, like I remember the first time I got a print back and just being able to see that and realizing how special that is. Like that is the one thing that I always tell pe like people that start with with photography is like do prints and if they're just small prints but do prints realize that what you do doesn't live only on a on a computer screen or like in the internet like it should also be able to live on paper like if you if you take that out and it doesn't work on on the screen it doesn't work on the paper then it doesn't make sense for me to have it online like it's a really special moment of like getting that print back and like holding it in your hand and like if you like glossy paper or matte like that these are little things like that's your preference like but i don't care for that but to just get that moment of like holding your work in your hands instead of just looking at it on a on a computer yeah i mean i was raised in the old days of course you know with analog that like a photograph isn't completed until it's framed basically because it was shy of that it's just a piece, an image on a piece of paper and you have to sort of complete the whole process so unfortunately i'm a bit also fetishized about like presentation methods as well because you know i'm not a painter where a painter can just like put their piece on the wall and it's done but a photographer i can't just like nail it on the wall and say done you know you gotta yeah you you could you could but like yeah it's it's it might not be your work or like might not be your approach and like it's also like i agree with you like for me like it, it should be go the next step but some work actually works really well like to put it really on the like nail it on the wall um there, there, there's a whole school that is really in that and if it works for a particular piece of fine like i'm, I'm not going to force anyone like to to go to like to think about framing or matting i think the good thing is like it, we have possibilities now like i have a huge print of the artist sarah schön felt in my in my living room that is i don't know like i think six six feet something 
and it's it's literally clipped on on the sides like there has like this little clips and then like put on the wall and it works exactly because it is really free and really loose it's really it's a really abstract work but it looks really good like that and i asked her before like would you be offended if i do that and she's like no i really love that so if your work allows it fine for me like i, I quite enjoy when my work is framed but on the other hand like i'm not i'm not telling a collector how they should frame it like i find that always a bit difficult like when people really go like okay my work can only be framed only like that was like well once i have the money it's out of my hands which is pretty much true unless like you like handmade the frames and they somehow relate to the work itself then chances are anybody who buys whatever piece of art you have is going to replace the frame to match their living room or their their office or wherever they're going to hang it I mean, most collectors get rid of the frames that you you bring on like if, if they really hang it but like if they store it also quite often like work on paper the good thing about that is flat and you can store it really easily so a chunky a chunky frame gets a little bit in the way then yeah i know i i always joke with my wife that like when we move i'm always like you know you're so lucky i'm a works on paper person instead of like a metal sculptor or a stone sculptor <laughs> like fuck the amount of money like the, they must do for like storage and moving stuff like ugh, ridiculous like i can just throw my stuff in my backpack and i'm out <laughs> exactly That's exactly that all right wait i want to get back to one other thing you mentioned you mentioned you're not a writer and i love that i'm not a writer either i'm a visual artist and i'm a talker but you have done some a number of like residencies and other sorts of grant stuff and you and i'm sure you've even what you've done books and you've proposed things so like you seem to have some skill in being able to write either as a proposal or about your work in some way so i'm sort of interested in your approach to how you're doing that okay like what i'm gonna say probably might sound annoying or you hire a curator to do it don't you Okay, first of all, like I don't really write much about myself. I don't really have a massive artist statement. Like all of that, like I, I know a lot of people get really off on that. Like and good for them. Like some are really great writers, and like it makes sense to, to explain or like their process. I don't necessarily think it always helps. Um, quite often for me, like for me personally, when I look at something, I don't, I don't want to have to read a manual to get into the work. That doesn't say that I'm right. It's just like my personal preference is kind of like the way that I, I deal with things is like it should work first on a, on a different level. And then when I'm interested, I'm happy to dive into it and ask questions. So like in terms of my work, like there is on my website, there's a really simple explanation of like who I am, like what I'm like, what I where I came from, the little bit like the explanation of the, of the, the memory and the brain, how I start like what my work was about in the beginning, how it changed while I was in LA at the Tom of Finland residency, for example, like how that influenced me and where I am today, which, but generally like I am, I'm, I wouldn't say lazy, but I'm just really concentrated on what I do. I never applied for anything in my life. And that is, that's Wait. the point where, where it gets annoying for many people. I just basically, I focus on my work and it works best for me when I lean back, I do a good job and let people come to me. And I don't know how that works, like there's no recipe, but it maybe I got lucky and one day, like my luck, I don't, uh, won't have that. And then I'm, I never learned actually how to write a proposal. I never learned how to make, write a concept, you know, like I never, 
I never had that. But so far, I've been blessed with people approaching me and asking me if I want to participate or if I want to do something or if I want to go there. But like that also kind of like takes me out of like the whole grant situation. I never got a grant because I never applied for it. Like I like the residency in LA I got because the Dirk Jena, the president of the foundation, basically told me I should come. Like you would love me to ha have me as a artist resident. But like there's so many other residencies that I will never get because I don't know how to apply. Like, I don't know how to kind of like sit there and like write them a proposal. I have friends that are really good at that and they do amazing residencies in Japan, in wherever and do, but they're also really good in writing these things and they're really trained. And that is a talent that I don't have. I, I think it's great to hear that like you're, not, it's not even a concern. Like I didn't really do much of it. I just started doing it more in the past five years, probably, than I ever did in my entire career. And it's done okay for me. I'm not complaining about it. This podcast is paid for by a, a grant. So I did one well. Nice. <laughs> That's it. One. I got one. Got one more than I do. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, it was, I, I think it was dumb luck. But, anyways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, cause I noticed like on your Instagram, like you're, like, I write these really long verbose with links and hashtags and all this. And you just like put like a person's name. That's it. I like things simple. Like, but I, I think like, this is like, again, like the, 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 the germ or like the European versus the, the American thing. It's like, you're so trained in the States, like to do, to promote yourself in such a massive way that it can sometimes feel like really show-offy or like really like Chris like braggy and I, I'm not saying that we don't do that here in, in Europe either like I'm, there are certain schools that exactly do that as well or like it gets more and more popular it's just like me as a person like I like things as simple as possible I think that breaks down to capitalism versus in America versus I'll call it non-capitalism because I'm not going to say what it is here because in America, like I have this debate with my wife quite frequently about like being a cheerleader, selling yourself. Like these are things that we're told that is the American way, basically. And in in Europe, I find that like not it's, the easiest word I can find is humble. Like so, you just state this is what I do there, and you like it or you don't. Done. Whereas in America, we're trying to convince you to like what we do. We're trying to tell you why it's so interesting and, and, and selling you on it. And it's a very interesting difference between these two cultures, which, which to a certain extent are not two cultures. Like we're all the arts community, but in the geographical relationships, we are very different cultures in the way we approach these things. Because well, like when I first landed in Europe, I showed my work to this, this gallery and they, and I barely said anything to them and they started looking at me and they're like, Oh, you're American. I was like, I was like, how, how did you know I was American? And they were like, Oh, well the way this person's posed, that's an American style. And I was, I was like, there's an American style of poses. Like, so there really is this very vastly different culture, whether it's how it's funded or how it's supported or how we talk about it. Um, and, and I, I wish I could quite honestly, I wish I could have come back and be more European. I don't know. I think both have like advantages and disadvantages. And like, I think like if you're able to, to use them for your advantage, then 
why not like I, yeah like of course it, it feels always foreign like if you if you didn't grow up with it like for me like the american way in the beginning like like we have a lot of experts here in berlin and a lot of that like like berlin wasn't a popular city for a long time then all of a sudden became like this super popular city like overnight and everyone moved here and became this bad cliche of like i'm going to berlin just to find myself and work artistically but you also had this really hungry hungry experts from the states that like in the beginning it felt really kind of like why are they so thirsty like what's it's like it got really tiring that everyone always constantly like no matter where try to sell you shit and like even if they didn't do anything that would always be like a car sales salesman thing but then i'm also realizing no that's actually how you're trained and that's fine like there's there's there's, like, there's no judgment in it. it you might run against the wall here in europe with that and you might have to adjust a little bit, but the same way that when I go to the States and talk with a gallerist, like they are probably irritated how cold I am or like how how much I take myself out of the equation. Like I'm working on a new book right now. Like this is gonna come out like in, in December. <laughs> you can pre-order it at paperfest.com. Tell me, no, wait, sell it, sell it. Tell me where you can get it. I'll put it in the show notes. The Viennese publishing house called Paper Affairs, who I did my second book with already. They really like I really love them because they're really dedicated, especially in terms of paper and printing. And it's going to come out in end of November, beginning of December. I should be able to pre-order it by now. So paperaffair.com, I think, is the website. Okay, I will put a link to it in the show notes. In the initial draft of the book, like I had like three self-portraits in there. And going through the pages, I took them out eventually because like it really like it felt awkward for me to have myself in there, my face in there. I didn't want to be happen in my work. And a lot of people that I showed it beforehand were going, kind of, oh, why did you take that out? Especially Americans. But like, it's really good because it shows you. I was like, because, yeah, it's like it's my face, but it's not my like I don't want to show up in my work. Like it's it, it's not my topic. Like I'm I am not my topic. Like the, the new book is going to be. I go come back to these these diary photos that I took in the hospital and afterwards, like it's a little bit like that again, that I started last year with a small camera, like to basically take photos, like small photos again. And like the new book is going to be that it's going to be a book about photos from one year, which happened to be last year. Like it's not going to be a Corona work, which was really important for me. Like I'm already tired of all the releases of Corona work that's been done in the kitchen with a teaspoon. Oh my God. Thank you so much. I've been saying this to people for so long. I've been like, look, I don't want to see any more series of artworks about coronavirus or about the pandemic or about being isolated and locked down. It's it's of its time and it's going to like be dated and have no relevance, you know, in five, 10 years. So, I, I mean, I'm already tired of that. Exactly. Or it's going to be interesting in 20 or 50 years time when people, there's a generation that didn't go through that and is interested. But right now it's like, we're like, we just, we're still in that. Like, really, I need to see you wearing a fucking mask, like in 365 different ways on paper. No. Yeah. We, we just, we just got our uh, COVID restrictions increased this week. So yeah, I'm, we're still in this. Exactly. So it's going to happen here as well. So the book is not about Corona. It's, it's literally about one year's one year of photos that I took, like with a with a small camera, like my daily observations, a few journeys that I did in the beginning of the year, 
like I, I barely shot people, which was a really nice break. Like I really enjoyed, I, I enjoyed lockdown and I enjoyed not having to deal with people, also not to shoot people. It's kind of like, uh, I wouldn't say it's just a celebration, but it's kind of like, it, it feels a bit like my, 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 my life from last year. Like the death of my father is in there as, as well, like which is, was part of the year, but it's a beautiful book. It goes away or like it, it introduces like, the other part of my work that many people don't know, like most people know my close-ups, they know the, the work with bodies or with skin, also with sexuality, and that barely happens in that book. So it's a, it's a kind of like a new body of work that I introduce, and I'm quite happy about that. I don't know how we ended up like talking about the book, but yeah. <laughs> I don't know how we just end up talking about anything. It just sort of goes. But now your loss of your father, was that a, a sudden thing or was that old age? Was there something more to that? 11 years of cancer. He was fighting really hard and he had a cancer that was like his life expectancy after the diagnosis was like three years and like he made it 11. So like he's been fighting a tough fight, but then like like last year, there was a point where it just wouldn't work anymore. And like I told him before, well, I promised him before, like, if it ever comes to the point where he wants to die, I'll be there and kind of, like, guide him through. So my, my job last year was to to go there and, like, to help him to to die and make it possible for him to have a dignified end. But also, like, to, to support my mom and, like, take, like, you know, like, with every death, like, the whole bureaucracy is just crazy, like, to, to function and do all of that. So my mom had time to mourn. But yeah, so like it, it, the death is in that sense, it's not the, the topic of the book, but like death goes through the book in, in a romantic way also. Like it's not kind of like a horrible book to look at, but it's, it's definitely like it's one of the topics of the book in a, in a quite nice, quite beautiful way. And I think it's also, for me, it's a bit like also like the tribute to my dad. And like we had a rocky, rocky relationship, like for most of our life. And like we found a way in the last 10, 15 years, like to, to talk and to laugh, which was nice. So it's a, it's a nice closure in a way. Lovely. All right. Well, I think we've run out of our time. We've, this is very long for my podcast. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you for, for asking me to participate. Really appreciate that. And that's it. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. Please be sure to tell your friends, your coworkers, your family, anybody that has any interest in the arts or the creative process, because part of the reason for the podcast is to try and make it so that everybody can do their creative endeavors easier, better, more effectively, without as many difficulties and problems and mistakes that I made in my career. Uh, I hope you all can do better than I did. So... Please be sure to tell all your friends. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014, and the audio was edited by Mickey at Cush Audio Services. And the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. 
Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. Thank you.